Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Hola, bonjour, Yves. Hello, Story Shapers. It's time for a brand new episode. And this week, our victim, I mean, our honoured guest, is the one and only Louis Stoll, author of some of the cleverest, funniest and quite simply brilliantest books for young readers this side of Asgard. Louis lives and works in London and has had a long career in publishing. She has written so many books that it quite boggles the brain, including lots of fantastic non-fiction books about topics as varied as creative writing, computer coding, drawing your own comics and space, but she's possibly best known for her more recent series about a certain trickster god. Her Loki books, published by Walker Books and illustrated by Louis herself, are marvellously fun, while also being razor sharp in their observation of life and the challenges of being 11 years old at school and dealing with irritatingly embarrassing parents. And most wonderfully for medieval nerds like me, absolutely spot on in their use of the texts and legends that the character of Loki <laughs> is drawn from. <laughs> I'm also a huge fan of her novel Otherland, published by Nosy Pro and with a cover illustration by George Ermosh, which tells the tale of a baby stolen by the fairy queen and the quest to save her while also outwitting the tricks of the fairies. It really appealed to my labyrinth loving heart. Um, Louis has also written a fantastic trilogy about Kit and her pals who discover dragons in libraries, monsters in lakes and a wizard in the wood. These fab books called, funnily enough, The Dragon in the Library, The Monster in the Lake and The Wizard in the Wood are published <laughs> by Nosy Crow and illustrated by David Ortu. In short, Louis is a writing powerhouse, but also a person with a voracious interest in lots of fantastically wonderful things. Most of which also interests me and I'm sure Susan too. So we can't wait to get into our chat. It only remains for me to say welcome to Story Shaped, Louis Stowell. It's great to have you. Welcome. I didn't know you were a medievalist. We're going to have to talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I should say I'm a dormant medievalist. I'm very yeah, yeah. rusty. It's, it's I'm a not long sure time it's yet. ever dormant, though, Sinead. We no, have we talk no. about medieval stuff in every podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I do kind of manage to wrangle it in somewhere. Yeah. No, I did a PhD in medieval literature, like in the last century sometime. Uh, and I've, for, I've forgotten about 95 percent of it, but I still have my interest in the field. Yeah. So, yes. So I, I love I love I wonder I've only read the first Loki book. But uh, I know the rest of them are fantastic too, and uh, you are a person who does does the legwork, uh, <laughs> and uh, who gets the who I know you you rely on the on the legends a lot, and you do your best to sort of bring them into a modern context, which I think is really cool and really clever. And then so. on that note, actually, a big shout out to Caroline Larrington, whose work I've been oh I love her massively, <laughs> and awesome. she's also personally very nice and has been very helpful. Um, yeah, because she's got um, that new book about Norse myth. Yes, let me look at the title. It is. Norse myths that shape the way we think. Yes, that's brilliant. Because I have the Celtic down. myths that shape the way we think by Mark Williams, which is also ah, excellent. Yeah. But she is she's wonderful. I don't know her, but I've read her work. Oh, sorry. sorry? Go ahead. I'm saying no, it's the poetic editor that I've been using. Oh, okay. Um, but also, um, she's got a Thames and Hudson book called The Norse Myths, A Guide to the Gods and Heroes, and it's like a really lovely little kind of like lots of nuggets of text which I really enjoy when researching because it's quite nice to just be able to flip through and think, oh, that looks interesting. I'm going yeah, to yeah. dive into that. Great. I haven't heard of those books or, or Caroline Larrington, so I'm delighted to write that name down and I'm going to... She's, she's on Twitter and gives quality Norse content. So. Fantastic. Yeah, you, you will love her, Sinead. I, can't, I actually can't believe you don't I know. know. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't do everything. No, I feel bad. I was like, how have I not told you about this woman? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully my husband is not listening to this podcast because um, uh, I'm going to buy a new book, dear. <laughs> um, um, Actually, my one other Norse tip that is free is um, uh, Jackson Crawford's videos are very good as well. Um, he's an academic in America somewhere um, who does kind of explainer videos for various aspects of Norse mythology and, and language specifically as well. Oh, which... Awesome. Brilliant. Yeah, it reminds me of when I was doing my PhD, we had to study Old Norse and we had three little handbooks uh, and I can't remember, there were one, there were red, yellow and blue and one was like a primer and one was like a texts and the other one was like a grammar handbook and I'd say watching a video on YouTube would be a lot less 
<laughs> stressful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I when I because I did old English when I was at uni, I actually really regret yeah. not doing old Norse as well. But um, I yeah, there was no. I mean, the internet wasn't really a thing for no, academia no, at that point. We're of that, we're of that generation. Yeah, ninety seven, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah we we much. both studied old English and UCD at the same time. Oh, we had language much, yeah oh no did you you didn't do the you didn't, i didn't do old, i didn't do mod one english so you had because i did pu- labs. I, I did, wish i had done them <laughs> i did a degree in like pure it was called pure english so half <laughs> half of it was like not all nazi sounding at all <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think of it like that oh god <laughs> Jeez. like half of it was modern english which was like from shakespeare onwards and the yeah. other half of it was old and middle so we had a lot of old and middle to do from mm-hmm. shakespeare <laughs> yeah and we did like language labs in old english where we had to go into the into the language lab and listen to someone wow. had to do that i don't know why we didn't i probably it was great. Better, i loved that my, my my supervisor i think he did the voiceovers for the old english labs <laughs> i would have loved to listen to him he's a great great speaking voice but tolkien yeah. set up that that yeah, english he department did. yeah he's one UCD. of the founders of it yeah and uh, the reason I went to college I went to, he was uh, my inspiration. In fact, one of my origin stories, which I'm sure we'll get onto. Ooh. Excellent. I remember once going into one of my professor's offices and he, for a treat, when he liked you, yeah, he would open his top drawer, which was under lock and key all the time, and he would whip out his copy of the Fellowship of the Ring and quickly flick it open to the title page, which was signed by Tolkien, and then oh snap it shut again and put it away. So <laughs> touch it or breathe on it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I was like, oh my God. So when I, when he did that for me, I was like, I'm in, I'm in the inner yeah. circle. <laughs> I'm in the I never, I never saw that signature. <laughs> that was Terry, Terry Dolan, who sadly has passed away since um, he was oh. a wonderful, wonderful teacher and a wonderful supervisor for part of my PhD. Um, and I really felt as though I had passed a test when I got to see the Tolkien, <laughs> the Tolkien inscription. Um, but yeah, so wonderful. And I'm sure, but hopefully we'll talk about Tolkien more because he's another interest of mine as well. He'll be but, back um, in several yeah. sections, I imagine. He'll, he'll be back. <laughs> like the Terminator. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, welcome to Storyshift, Louis. It's great to have you here. Um, we're big fans of your work. And uh, I guess we should kick off the podcast episode by asking everybody, uh, or asking the question we ask everybody, I should say, which is, Louis Stowell, are you story-shaped? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been thinking point. about it a lot, actually. I, I feel like I'm I'm a deeply unspiritual person in general um mm-hmm. but i think story is the one area where i get a bit woo woo you know um, <laughs> i love it <laughs> um basically because i think over my life i've kind of built this concept of stories where there aren't individual stories there's just one big story world and they're all connected um mm-hmm. so when you write a story you're not really making it up what you're doing is you're kind of drawing on threads from this i guess loom of stories um this is going to be very mixed metaphors the whole way no, that um, sounds great. So basically, I, I remember, so mentioned one for Tolkien. Sub-creation really interested me, that idea that you're not kind of creating something out of nothing. You're kind of creating something within a pre-existing universe. And I think as a writer, I partly find that very comforting because it's it, there's no blank page. There's already all the stories that have been written out there. Um and and so much of it's unconscious it's not like I sit there going "Mm, I'm going to write a story that takes an aspect of this an aspect of this but um it does mean that I feel like there's a kind of invisible universe bristling with stories and and I think as a consequence I've never found ideas stressful because I think they're all there you know there's a kind of I don't know choirs of angels but they're ideas um <laughs> and you've really just got to find them they're there somewhere you know so it's more about finding and I guess it's that kind of view a bit like sculpture where you have this block and inside it is the sculpture um and all you've got to do is like find the right edges to cut out the sculpture and I think I feel about that with stories that they have a certain natural shape to them and I just need to find them uh finding the finding process is very hard and I'm not saying mm-hmm. it kind of like I just pluck an idea from the ether and there it is it's more kind of um it means that I trust in stories like I trust them to be there for me and to kind of answer when I call amazing that's such a reassuring idea as an author yeah and I think maybe as anyone who's interested in stories that there is this I love that loom of stories up there that you just have to you have to find the the right threads to create your yeah, particular it reminds, me of, reminds me of l space in the discworld you know the, the the unseen university library where every book that has ever been written or not written uh, exists somewhere you, yeah. know, you have to just know the dimension to go into to find it you know and 
all stories are there. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. I wonder if that's yeah. partly where it came from. I think it also came from Alan from Alan Moore for me. Um oh, yeah. thinking about the um League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and how that is a mashup of all different stories. And True, yeah. that just made me think about how um how that's just how I see stories already. Um, so there's no reason why Rupert the Bear can't walk in on Dracula or Mina from Dracula. Well, um, copyright possibly would be a problem. He, maybe. He Sometimes. <laughs> there's a great big old Rupert the Bear and no one cares. Actually, I have no idea if Rupert's out of copyright yet. I, I love it maybe. when something goes out, copy, out of copyright though and everything goes wild. Mm. You know, there to be a rush of things. Yeah, like a countdown to when, oh my God, yeah. when is it available? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think, um, so yeah, Alan Moore in that way very much influenced my kind of, how I shape stories in my mind before I actually write them. Because um, I think that was, that and probably superhero team-ups were kind of a permission to have this idea of um, of stories all existing together. Every time Superman and Batman fight each other, that's that's proof of my theory. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's I just that. they're in the say IP, IP universe, but whatever. Brilliant. And were there particular comics that you would have followed as, as a kid or as a younger person? That Ooh, so many. Um, yeah. So uh, I did. I did read Superman and Batman. Um, I was very into the Dark Knight Returns. Not as a small child; that was a bit dark. But as a you know young teenager. Um, but then I think the big ones when I was an actual child um, were 2000 AD and Oink, which sadly no longer exists. But it was a satirical comic for children, and I think that entirely shaped my worldview about absolutely everything, really, because um, it was it was sort of had a fictional editorial team who were all pigs. <laughs> <laughs> and there's kind of running kind of vendetta with them against the butchers. Um, and and basically they did pig versions of everything. Um, so they did ham dare and you know, said damn dare. Um, I, f I forget what all the other puns were, but they were amazing. Um, but they also had non-pig characters who were just, you know, sort of often satires of like Beano characters or or the kind of approach of the kind of innocence of a Beano character, but realizing, you know, making it kind of really horrible. Um and I think that idea of kind of the universe of stories being kind of at heart satirical really spoke to me as well. Um, like I take stories seriously, but I also think stories are there to kind of show us how ridiculous the world is. Yes. You can, you know, I mean, sometimes you can't do things in fiction that are happening in the world because they seem too ridiculous. And I think that is sidebar, the problem with contemporary satire where politics is having jumped the shark it's very hard to do satire of actual politics you can do mm -hmm. satire about other aspects of society but like kind of topical shows and stuff they're always like I mean what's the point like the reality is yeah. there so you should yeah. all you've got to do is do a journalism you know and that's and that's the satire <laughs> too much journalism <laughs> sorry that's probably not the technical term <laughs> it'll do we're not technical here um, that's amazing because I, I I actually got very little I we had very little exposure to not that we didn't have comics in Ireland mm. of course as we were discussing before we came on here, <laughs> um, but just, they didn't seem to get to our house. They were delivered uh, by cow. They were delivered by cow. <laughs> the end of the rain. Um, we like we had the Beano and the Dandy and things like, but yeah. we didn't we didn't get them on a weekly basis or whatever. Mm. Um, but probably were, were it was hard annuals to get for them. us. Yeah. Did you, did you not get Oink at all? No, no I never heard never Oink. Heard, it sounds amazing. Two thousand AD. I've heard of 2008, but I never, I never, I haven't ever read it. So that yeah. one was, um, I guess, where I get my kind of dystopian streak from, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. Because it was a kind of dystopian future setting for a bunch of stories, um, mm -hmm. and it was sort of an odd thing where, I mean, so it was in the 80s when like police brutality was terrible, like it is now, but like, well, yeah, mm -hmm. it was just having a moment where police brutality was on a on the up. Um, yeah. I think it's when all the sus laws were happening and stuff. Was that the 80s anyway? Around. Mm -hmm my job my history isn't great um but anyway so it was kind of um a satire of contemporary britain but but set in a fascist future america um where basically the police have the right to shoot on sight which clearly they do have now but you know it is that kind of thing of like we're doing this as a as a dystopia but we're also saying this is what life is like mm -hmm. um right and um and it was kind of, I guess that's where I got my love of anti-heroes because Judge Dredd is a fascist, you know, but you're also kind of weirdly on his side. side yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it's kind of asks, it's a really asks you, gets you to ask yourself really interesting questions as a reader of like, am I condoning something by by empathising with it or am I, or is it more complicated than that? Um, and I think it's, I've never really jibed with the idea of reading to relate. Like that's not, that's not, like, when people are like, oh, it's so relatable, I just don't care. I don't want to relate. I want to be like, shocked by difference you know um 
and but I can still empathize even if I can't relate you know so I'll be like Judge Dredd's having a midlife crisis and that's quite hard you know um, but also he shoots people in the face so where do I sit with this I mean I was I was like eight so I probably wasn't that nuanced about it at the time so it's more on reflection um but um but there was also a character called Halo Jones who had a massive impact which was probably where I got my love of space um because uh basically it's about a, a woman who's on unemployment in the future um where all unemployed people live in a separate kind of zone uh, again it was it was the 80s um mm -hmm. And um, and it's about how she escapes from that into space um, and doesn't have a very happy life, I have to say. But um, but it's about that idea of like anyone, an ordinary person can change the world, um, but they may not be remembered or they may not be remembered in the way that they they really were. Um, That's profound, yeah, because it happens. So like in, I often think about that, actually, um, how many how many wonderful, amazing people have there been in history that are not remembered because they were yeah. women or because they were of yeah. colour or because they lived in whatever parts of the world you know with, with halo it's, jones actually yeah. is framed as history remembering her but i think it's almost like showing that this doesn't normally happen right know? yeah yeah um because this it starts with a, a history class in the future of you know the future of the future okay right <laughs> but they, but i think it's kind of them trying to understand who she was when there, there isn't enough evidence you know yeah um, they're, they're amazing concepts to come across in in, in comics you know and i'm just thinking yeah. isn't it sad that, that we still have this i think you know bonkers notion that comic books are not quote unquote real reading or that they don't yeah. you know that they're not you know good enough for kids whatever you know I'm listening to you and you were a kid reading these amazing concepts and, mm. and being formed by these really deep you know ideas and and it just sounds so it's like such a great start to a life of of thought and creation mm. you know uh, you know so it, it really gives the light to the idea that comics aren't equal to books or that they aren't yeah you know, they aren't a, they aren't a worthy format you know and it's, it is just... you're saying like we yeah. say that and it's like the we is an interesting we there because it is I I mean I don't know about the Irish scene at all but I would definitely say it's quite an English problem because in America yeah. it's not the same and they are oh, really? actually oh really yeah much more serious oh, that's good I'm glad um, yeah. they're being championed by librarians and like the sales figures reflect it like all the top sellers mm. of comics in 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 children's books I mean I don't, don't know so that's much. true actually because I have a kid who reads and she um you know her age like everything she loves I mean she loves lots of stuff and she would mm. read book books as well but she, uh, comics and graphic novels are her absolute passion yeah um, and there are so many that are fantastic you know um, and I, lo I, I love the cultural them. reluctance and yeah. um, kind of uh, obstinacy I'd say yeah. why do you think that is why it's very hard so I've, I've, I don't know if you've come across a, a comic creator called Mark Bradley he does yes. Bumble and Snug we love Bumble and Snug yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he talks about this a lot and we've had quite a lot of conversations about it, about basically, it's sort of hard to pinpoint the resistance exactly, but I think it's something about the idea that visual literacy is not as important as textual literacy. Or, Which is know, nonsense. In the, in the word sense, not the... the yeah. Um, and, and I think there is that idea that comics are too easy um when actually comics are very sophisticated and I remember a friend of mine when she'd never read a comic before and I gave her one when she was 19 and she literally could not read it this was someone who was like doing a degree in a kind of words-based subject at the time you know right um and because she didn't have the grammar of comics she couldn't read it she was like where do I look where you know where does my eye go how does this work what mm -hmm. what do I read first you know and, um and I think um it just I don't know why people dismiss it but they do and I and I don't know I think it's something about can't speak for Scottish and Welsh culture, English culture specifically is particularly bad for basically, I guess, dismissing the visual arts as well mm. to an extent, unless it's like a famous artist, you know what I mean? There's, there's kind of, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. It's just a bad country. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, but anyway, but I think the point is actually, it's, it's not about why people are, well, we have to find out why they are stopping people reading kids reading comics in order to overcome that but I do think I, I do have this optimism that it will change and that people will realize what kind of magical unlocking ability comics can have as you know as a medium yeah. in their own right not as a step to books and I think mm -hmm. that idea of like comics are great as a way to get kids towards books and it's like no comics are books <laughs> yes towards comics and if they read text only books that's that's you know fine whatever but like I don't think I don't think we should present a hierarchy there um, and especially because the way that information is presented in the modern world, if you're even just thinking on a pragmatic level of how to educate a population, you know, 
everything that you consume is is quite visual actually you know whether it's yeah. like instructions of how to do something or um even like newspapers are very visual now like mm. if you compare like a paper from the 80s with one now it's just more pictures than there are words you know and actually being able to pass that level of information and work out where the caption is 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 key to kind of absorbing the world around you you know mm -hmm. It's funny because we were reading it out loud. My little girl was reading out loud to me a comic the other night. She was it's called Barb the Brave. Um, and I forget mm. the names of the author and illustrator, but it's brilliant. Such a good comic or a graphic novel, I should say, or whatever the technical. I don't I don't know what the proper way to say comic refer to it is comic. Yeah, because people um, say graphic novel and they can. Yeah. I don't know what that means. That's like, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, but um, but she was reading the speech bubbles kind of in the wrong order because she was kind of going as as you would read a book. I was like, no, Ducky, you have to read this way and this way and this way because that's the way yeah. the characters are speaking and it makes sense that way. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, of course. You know that, and that. You know, so oh, you're well, saying, she, what she's saying is so interesting. Speech bubbles, even yeah, she was kind of reading panels. them out of, out of order because it was kind of the way she would be used to in a book. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, isn't it great? Because what you're saying is completely true. You, you do it. It is a different sort of skill set when you're yeah. faced with a with a page of comic, you know, art and text. You you have to have yeah. a way of you know getting into it. And I I remember when I was in my twenties. I don't know what age I was. Um, for my birthday present, a friend bought me um an edition or an issue of Sandman because I had said to him a long time ago. God, I'd love to read Sandman. I never got mm. into it and I'd love to. And he got he he bought me one. Um, I can't remember which one it was now. Mm. But he said it's not it's not the first one, but it's the one I think you like the most. And I did, right. and I loved it, and it was brilliant. And I remember thinking, God, this is amazing. And it just opened my mind to to a world of comics that I haven't yet fully, you know, uh stepped into. I've got a few, yeah. I got a, I got a few editions of saga or a few issues of um a few issues of another one. Uh can't remember the name but now, but it's they're, they're excellent, you know, excellent. And I wish I wish I had time. I wish I had the <laughs> It, I suppose the ability to to understand you know to to really really immerse myself because it mm. seems like a, an amazing um and I, I it's so sad to think what you're saying is true though that people discount visual literacy you know because it's not mm. quote unquote as good as as yeah. verbal or whatever of course it's a, it's a, it's a really strong skill and of course anyone who's ever seen a child with a picture book knows you know visual literacy yeah. is absolutely vital it's the and first introduction to stories the idea that kids like i don't know that that they that you graduate from pictures to words is yeah. just so sort of disrespectful to entire areas of art. You know? yeah. um, but but also means that just kids are missing out on amazing books because I've I've been in bookshops where I've seen a child pick up a comic and their parents made them put it down and pick up a proper book, you know, and that there's like top tips to how to make your child hate reading. You know what I mean? Like take mm. away the thing they want and give them something else, especially because they often substitute a classic. So, you know, something from yeah. the 19th century is just not necessary. I mean, you know, some things from the 19th century will appeal, but like, yeah. it's not, it's not, I don't know. Like, I don't think that's the, the first thing you should be giving a child when they're- No, absolutely not. Story. Yeah. No, you may not have Bumble's dog here. You have Ivanhoe instead. You know, I don't think that would work. <laughs> <laughs> These things are not the same. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Um, so great so we've we've established that uh, comics are a major part of your your story shaped life um yeah i am I there <laughs> any your comic shaped fantastic i love that um were there any other any other books you'd like to tell us about that influenced you as a younger okay. person you, can, you, you might be able to hear i'm rubbing louise rubbing her hands together in a... <laughs> so um shout out to the authorless books that aren't really books um as in myths Mm, yeah, awesome. or rather they've had many authors and I think that's very much shaped my view of what it means to write a story because I don't think authors are all that much important all that important as individuals um I don't think you know there's this kind of magic thing authors have because everyone tells stories you know what I mean you tell stories down the pub and there'll be mm -hmm. people who are amazing at oral storytelling who wouldn't necessarily write a novel but they are captivating storytellers yep. um and there's people that do both you know um and there's authors who are terrible down the pub, you know. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I, may, I I count myself among that group. I'm oh, really? <laughs> really, really bad at telling stories when I'm, you know, faced with my just my my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> right. On, on a page, I'm not too bad, but speaking, I'm useless. So yeah, my, my stories yeah. tend to be like, uh, this happened, this happened, this happened. None of this is relevant to. You like to set, set the scene, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, so, Louis. Yeah. So I think um anyway, so mythology of all kinds has had a massive impact on me. And I think and and stories that have taken mythology and played with them as well. Um so there's um the Rivers of London books, which I love about, them. Um about the idea of kind of gods, you know, I guess local gods, um, and each river being divine. Um, but also I think that idea of myths being enmeshed in in real places, because I, I'm 
apart from Tolkien, I'm not generally that interested in secondary world fantasy. Um, mm. But um, what I really love is, I guess, contemporary fantasy. It doesn't really have enough of a kind of genre concept, but basically stuff like Neverwhere, where mm, it's, I love it's, Neverwhere. it's it's London. I mean, basically mm -hmm. things are set in London because I live here and I'm, you know, I like seeing places that I've actually walked down that street, you know, in, in a book. Yeah. Um, have right. you read have you read um victoria is it b.e schwab's books about london the, the no i have no. never read those yet so they yeah. are actually excellent too i'd love to know what a london person would make of them as well yeah, yeah. I, I don't i don't know the, i don't know the geography of the city at all but yeah. I, I think i think there's such an amazing concept they really mm. are fantastic what is the, what's the basic idea um basically that there's four versions of like four four versions of london and four kind of alternate realities and you can and there's a character that can kind of go between them but the the, the first book that yeah, opens, there's, there's it, also it, it, um the city in the city with a similar concept mm -hmm. yes is that is that that's that's um, yeah. yeah he's fantastic I've, I've not actually read it yet because basically I, yeah dad always reads stuff and then will tell me the entire plot <laughs> oh right he's yeah. saying stop telling me spoilers and he keeps telling me spoilers um you can keep that bit in because he needs to learn <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so so yeah neverwhere ben ranovich those, those kind of london mythologies fantastic. um and then um in the in the kind of i guess I do like Secondary World when it's character from our world goes to that world. So I guess like portal fantasy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so one very formative influence was the Books of Magic, which are our comics, actually. Um, I really, are they still in print? I'm trying to find those. For I don't know. I've, I've still got my original copy. Find them. So, oh. um, but they were amazing. They, they were they were a big influence on my book, Otherland. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that idea of like fairy being this other realm. Um, mm. But also, um, I remember being really, really annoyed when Harry Potter got big because I was like the books of magic are like this but better yeah <laughs> um and you know I mean around the same time but whatever um but basically it was about a boy wizard who um has an owl has an owl and has glasses also a skateboard yeah. which made him better um <laughs> and basically he's visited by all these kind of wizards from different realms and sort of teaching about magic um but it had my favorite wizard of all um which is John Constantine in it um I love John Constantine um basically I just I think like one day I'm going to design a character in a coat like that, just as homage. Well, you really need to read Victoria Schwab then because she has a character in a coat and it's the best coat I've ever read. Best coat in yeah, fiction yeah, yeah. belongs to Kel. From, is it better from than Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat? Coats have been important. Mm. Is it better, <laughs> but is it better than Crestomancy's dressing gowns? Uh, um, that's a hard you know what I mean? Like, I think I found Crestomancy, like, I, I love the books, but I, I found him a bit annoying. Um, I think because okay. he was like the uncle who tries too hard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll allow it. Because <laughs> <laughs> John Constantine is just a mess, and, I, and he owns that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm, I love people yeah. who are messes and just get on with it anyway. Yeah, yeah Crestomancy is quite slick, isn't he? Yeah, he is a bit slick. Well, yeah. well, they're very different characters. Um, I would say like Loki owns a, owes a lot to John Constantine. Um, he's not cool like John Constantine, but he is just like a complete nightmare mess for everyone <laughs> around him. And I think that is, that's their own life constantly um mm -hmm. and um there's someone did a really good tweet the other day about describing what being a novelist is and i think it was something along the lines of um uh i made a little guy uh-oh now he has problems <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh my my favorite stories are uh-oh i made a little guy he he is the problem you know um yeah he is the problem and so, yeah. he has problems. <laughs> so it's like other land myra oh, is a God. similar she is the problem um it's she basically like she's a disaster um, I think, yeah, I feel like actually my first books that didn't have like the kit wasn't a huge disaster, but like a minor disaster. Right. I feel like maybe for that age group, because it was a bit younger, I couldn't kind of let rip in the same way. Go into the whole total chaos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I do think you spiral more and more out of control the older you get. So I think. True, true. You know, yes. I think my chaos vortex. Peak. Yes. <laughs> I think I've become more of a chaos vortex as I got older. It's true. <laughs> Because you That's just you lean into your own chaos, you know. And, Absolutely, and, yeah. And you, you don't stop to be anything more than four raccoons in a trench coat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but John Constantine's exactly. trench coat, very importantly. <laughs> well, I think I'd like to have Kel's coat too. That has m multiple sides, you know. Well, I'm gonna have to read these books. Out, you know, oh, it's, they're fantastic. Yeah, what they're what is good. the what's the name of the first one? Oh God, I can't remember. Is it a Conjuring of Magic? I have is to it look is or, it the one yeah. that has like a darker shade of magic as one of a them? A darker shade of magic, yeah. sorry. Yes, that's, that's, that's the first that's one. It, yeah. No, it's definitely, yeah. it's one of those like been on my list for ages, but then I get, because I, I don't have as much time to read adult books as I used to, because I'm always getting sent proofs for kids' books. Which yeah, is yeah, it is lovely. Proofs, yes. But like, it, really it doesn't, 
my, it's my really grade perfect. time is, is kind of limited and also I've been I've been reading the Expanse books um and there's like 10 of them so I'm uh I, I'm nearly finished actually so I think I will actually read a new book what soon. are they oh so it was uh it was a tv show if you ever saw that but um basically it's about class war in the future in space um Ooh. and the idea about the kind of center the kind of inner planets the inners um are the ones with all the power and money so like mars and earth are you know where the rich colon you know well they're not colonies but well mars is a colony but anyway it's where the rich people live and then the belt as in the asteroid belt right um, it's where the poor people live and it's right. about kind of those those clashes and then it gets quite mystical in a fun way with like you know gates to other worlds and Ooh, I'm, I'm invested this sounds yeah. amazing yeah it's great it's it basically it's one of those like um so i guess like the um i made a little guy he is the problem um <laughs> also they're like um i made a bunch of little guys and they all have a dysfunctional family relationship together while being the problem um right. the found family of like misfits and you know um deeply scarred people which is is always fun a bit harder to do for children's books but i I try. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing is beyond you, Louis. I'm sure you can manage. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, so I've been thinking about other things, other stories that sort of shape my work. Um, and I, I would definitely say there's kind of some that are very well known, like Tolkien, and some that are less well known, like well, she should be well known, but Jan Mark. I don't know. If oh that makes yes, sense. yeah, yes. yeah. Um, and there is this one story called Hutzpah that she wrote that has basically stuck with me for life, not just as a story. You know as a story writer but also as a as a human being because it's basically about bluffing your way into something um and i think i've always been fascinated by the concept of bluffing because it's how i always felt like that's how i live my life you know like i don't, mm. don't know anything just pretending um but how much as long as you believe it you can make other people believe it um yeah. and uh and that that really stuck with me but also the idea of like just the naughty kid who says whatever they want because that's joy yeah amazing um, also, just William for me was that was the idea. Of like, just, he just no filter whatsoever, and and also he gets into trouble. He gets out of trouble. That's basically the story every time. Um, <laughs> sometimes he doesn't get out of trouble, but like basically, but it's quite low stakes. It's like, is he going to get his pocket money docked or not? You know. Yeah. So you have all the thrills without the spills yeah. necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Jan Mark is somebody I've kept. I keep meaning to read, and I've never actually. I don't think I've ever read anything by Jan Mark, but she's on my. You know my list of authors I really need to get into. So yeah. this is another, another, another kick from the universe. stories I've ever read. Right. What are, what are, her, what are some other books? Because I know um, I've read some, but I can't think of their uh, name. Well, that, that sto short story collection is called Hairs in the Palm of the Hand. And now, of course, I can't remember a single other book title. <laughs> of course, <laughs> as I, I would be the same if I was asked. To say. I was like, oh my yeah. God, I can't remember anything. But Hairs in the Palm of the Hand was the one that I read and reread because it, it, was, it was actually two school stories. It was that, it was the one called Hutzpah and then it's one called Time and the Hour about two, um, some kids who have a bet of like, um, can they waste more time in class or can they save more time as in can they like make the lessons last longer so it's basically this kind of war of like can they make the teachers make them stay late or can they like get the teacher to talk about their pet or something in class um, and it's basically this kid running in like a betting ring based on that <laughs> what um, a brilliant concept I love and, and I think it is that like it is well, just I was just earlier saying I don't think about relatable stuff but like it, it it's more relatable than like Billy Bunter's whatever you know like it's not it's much more like a normal school experience it's just an average school they're all set in comprehensives and you know it's very kind of yeah very average of the time yeah 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 because she she passed away quite a while ago now didn't she Seventy-six yeah. or something like that yeah, yeah. so she's not con exactly contemporary but yeah yeah, yeah. And then then another one who like means a lot to people of my roughly my age um which is john christopher and kills us who wrote the tripods which is about an alien invasion where basically they brainwash people by putting this metal cap in their head that kind of controls their thoughts um, and it's so it's kind of a dystopia where everyone's been plunged back into kind of medieval times worshipping these these aliens. Um, and what I think the thing I love the most about it, apart from it was just a brilliant world building and, and it was these great kind of young teenage characters, um, was at the end, spoiler, they throw off the alien yoke and then the humans start arguing amongst themselves. And that oh, just is so realistic. And it was so like, realistic. Yeah, it was like it was just like it ended Brexit, basically, you know, what I mean? not not quite. But um before brexit was a thing um and it was um i mean all my childhood reading was kind of under that kind of nuclear umbrella of everything mm -hmm. is apocalyptic and um there was also um nicholas fisk who was oh um, yeah the impact yeah 
pretty sure this was him. There was one called Space Hostages, which I put a tweet out a while back because um, I couldn't remember the title of it. And mm. eventually someone found it for me. It was amazing. And they actually sent me a copy, which was so nice. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I don't have it anymore. And it's basically about um, someone who, um, a pilot who has stolen a nuclear spaceship, um, but it it's leaking and he's dying of radiation poisoning. Um, and it's basically mm. the kids get left alone on this spaceship because he dies. Um, and it was just that kind of, it's that standard like Lord of the Flies scenario, but in right. space. But in space. Yeah. And I think that was my kind of like, I've, I've never actually done a but in space story yet. And I and I want to, I just need to find my moment because I, I spent so long doing nonfiction books about space. Um, yes. Yeah. I feel like I had a, I had that space head, that head space. Um, <laughs> now I need to find how to go into space for. Loki, you know, does Loki need to go to space? I mean, I've, I've pitched it so many times. <laughs> One day he will go to space. I've got a plan and everything. Um, but yes, maybe, maybe, maybe if people keep buying the books for long enough. Well, if you haven't, or if you're if you're listening and you haven't bought the Loki books or you haven't it's read them, it's gone by the Loki books. So Get I can them, dude. The so <laughs> They're amazing. They're so good. Um, yeah, I love Nicholas Fisk. I've only read one book by him though, um, and I, I forget it. Something a hank of hair is the end of it. Oh uh, yeah, something yeah. something in a hank of hair. And the reason I read it is because I heard Frances Harding talk about it once, and she said it was one of her formative books. And uh, and I thought, wow, well if it formed her, I need to read the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was brilliant. Like you really know, real, which was like a horror. Oh, so good. Yeah. Um, but again, it's interesting what kind of survives because obviously everyone's still reading Roald Dahl, but they're not reading that. Um, and and yeah I don't know and I don't know why like I I don't understand the cultural phenomenon well enough of like what gets passed down okay, yeah, I mean, maybe they just didn't sell that many at the time so you know what I mean so not as many people read them and then gave them to their kids I wonder yeah Ooh, or the people that read them didn't have kids because they knew that the world was going to end mm, maybe <laughs> that's a good theory that's a good theory <laughs> or that if it didn't end <laughs> that it was going to uh, turn well, into be horrible a, yeah you know a, a toxic sludge fest you know which again yeah, has yeah. happened yeah yeah brilliant so we're mm. all right um yeah but um I I feel like I've written this list before I come on this podcast of the books that shape me and it's just immensely long <laughs> but I think I do need to talk about Tolkien because I keep saying yes yes go for it so when did you when did Tolkien. you meet Tolkien first when did I meet Tolkien so it's a long story so I met Tolkien when uh I watched a video of the film as in the 1978 Ralph Bakshi film which was the never animated one the animated one. Oh, that's scared. Yeah. I saw that me when I was sensitive. really yes. quite young, and the Black Riders was so scary. I hid. Yes, them. yes, yeah, me too. Yeah, me I, I couldn't. I've never I made have it beyond that moment. Yeah, <laughs> I have it on. I have it on DVD downstairs, and I don't think it's ever yeah. played. But I, I watched it so much, I basically knew it off by heart. Um, and then <laughs> I don't know the exact order that all of this happened in because I was too young. But um, and then I read The Hobbit, or my dad read it to me, mm-hmm. um, and then I at some. point got measles or some, one of those childhood diseases that means you're in bed that we all got in the 80s yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the plague times um but uh yeah so and, and then my dad told me the story to lord of the rings the entire way through oh. while i was sick um so the first version i had was an oral retelling of lord of the rings um <laughs> i feel like tolkien would enjoy that i think that yeah. me too yeah absolutely um, yeah. and then i read it <laughs> and <laughs> then i listened to the radio play um which is I believe the best version of it, apart from the version my dad told me, obviously, um, it had Ian Holm as Frodo, who then played Bilbo in the films. Um, it had, um, uh, what's his face from Love Actually that plays the washed up musician? I'm having a brain. Oh, Bill Nye. Bill Nye. Plays oh, Bill Nye. Um, and just so many amazing voice actors. Um, and and the music was amazing. And it was just this kind of like perfect dramatization. And it basically got rid of all the boring stuff. Um which, I mean, the boring stuff shaped me too, because actually what it did is gave me a real love of walking. Um, because yes. there's a chapter after chapter of them walking. Occasionally they run. I love walking too. I don't run though. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's only, it's only like Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli that run. So it's fine. Don't yeah. Run. Well, I guess if I was being followed oh, by... If I was being followed by a, a Wraith Lord, I probably would run too, but not very far. <laughs> exactly. It's run and hide. Um, yes. So, yeah. So I had this kind of like telling and retelling of Tolkien in various ways um I'm pretty sure I, I wrote a play of Lord of the Rings when I was a kid that was adapting it mm-hmm. um but I was so precious that I wouldn't leave anything out so I got about as far as the second chapter in my adaptation because I was like I'm not leaving anything out everything's got to be in it you know everything I would have put Tom Bombadil in there like no one else does I love Tom Bombadil yeah I do too <laughs> um, yeah. my favorite fan theory is that he's somehow controlling the whole thing and he's the true dark lord 
um that's an I remember it, it died with like whatever it was not linkedin um my no not my space the other one damn it you both were one of those live chat oh yeah it's it a live journal thing um yeah so anyway so yeah i had think I don't think of Tolkien as, as a novelist, and I'm not sure he would have thought of himself as that. It is he did create a myth, and yes. that it lends itself to kind of retelling and um, and one of the kind of Norse stories that really influenced me, and in fact is the origin for um, book three, um, is one of the things Tolkien drew on, um, which well I don't know if he's ever said so explicitly, but I'm kind of assuming the the um, the cursed ring from. Uh, a dwarf called Anvari. He cursed a ring because Loki stole it off him. And basically everyone that possessed that ring down the generations had terrible things happen to them, um, which is very familiar from the One Ring. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of, that connection of Tolkien and Norse myth is, is fascinating to me. And I don't think I kind of understood it until recently when people have asked me, what inspired your books? And I'm like, oh yeah, it all fits together. Um, and my first experience of Norse myths was actually via another retelling, which is Wagner's and sort of via Germanic myth, because they also mushed together over time. Um, and the ring cycle, because I, I think I was just really captured by the the giants. I saw it on TV when I was quite young. I didn't I didn't sit there and watch the whole thing, but like the giants in it are like, I think they must have been on, on stilts or something, but it just seemed like magic, you know. Um, so that kind of Tolkien, Wagner, Norse mythology triangle where I realise it has very problematic assumptions, uh, and not assumptions, associations, but but it did have a, a really deep impact on me in that kind of idea of the story universe being vast and mm -hmm. also that um, it taps into these very kind of quite primal human emotions about kind of death and fear and enemies and the other and, and how you define that. And I think a lot of what my story creation has been um has involved has been kind of how to redefine the other so it's not the traditional kind of dark and light but the kind of idea of like the darkness within or the um the complexity of good and evil and well, that we, yeah that we all contain us yeah and and basically i think so we're very much with the loki books what i'm trying to do is sort of explore the idea that there isn't such thing as evil actually and people who have been potentially portrayed as evil it's never that simple and they've they're always maybe they're trying you know and um mm -hmm. also that there is no fate and there's no idea of like inevitable evil that you know i'm kind of very anti-fate generally um in life and in stories um and the reason I like Buffy so much was um, that it really kind of took the idea of the chosen one and then she gets to choose for herself. Um, and there's this one amazing bit where, you know, she's supposed to, she's prophesied to die. Mm -hmm. um, and the baddies are like, oh, you must die. It is written. And she said, I flunked the written. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love and, and that Buffy. just completely throw away approach to fate. And so when in Loki... Uh, spoilers for Norse mythology, Loki eventually definitely goes evil and, you know, is part of the end of the world. Um, and I want to give him a chance to not do that. Not do that, yeah. I mean, he's, he's still free to choose, who who knows? But um, that idea of, like, I don't I don't like the idea that everything is set on a track because it's, it's, it's not true to life, I, I don't think. You know, I always feel like just random stuff happens and people change. Mm. It's kind of funny because in a lot of like Anglo-Saxon, I suppose, old English poetry and mythology, like, I mean, it would, fate would be a big thing. Yeah. You know, uh, you know in Beowulf, isn't there, is there's a quote that goes, uh, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting it now. Guide thou weird swahil shell or something like that. You know, fate must go as fate must, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, well, I think and... if you're living in a society where everyone dies at 20, then there's, you've got to have that <laughs> way of explaining it. You know what I mean? I suppose, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not an anthropologist. I have no idea what age they died at. But you know what I mean? You're in a kind of culture where mm. everyone's doing battle all the time and having diseases. Mm. Um, but uh, but yes, it is interesting because I do def I have definitely read those kind of um, those stories that have fate in them, but then somehow came away with the idea that fate is nonsense. <laughs> that shuts right, stories I, I down agree. a bit, doesn't it? Fate, yeah, the idea of if, fate. There's, if there's no flexibility and if you know, yeah. the choice doesn't count or whatever, then yeah. It's like I always, at school, I liked English, not maths, because at English you could always argue your way, your way out of a corner, whereas maths is fate. But so maths is yeah. black and white. Yeah, it's right, it's right when or you wrong. Get, when you get further yeah. on, there's is more nuanced, but like at, at yeah. school level, you know. Um, and I think that idea of like you can always seize the means of production and have a revolution and change everything. Um, 
even if I don't necessarily have enough hope about the real world that that's possible I, I want to believe you know yes and you can change too. the world with words like in chutzpah this is very true and I think yeah basically that idea of like talking your way out of of tricky corners is something that I feel like I love characters that can do that and I because I think it is because I love to think that the world can be changed in that way I hope it can yeah for sure that and direct action but you know <laughs> <laughs> yes but I think uh, I think words I'll stick with words for now <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but um that's amazing yeah yeah because Buffy obviously is a big influence on you you called your dog after the show um uh, any, anything else that Buffy did gave you do you think oh absolutely so um yeah. so yes in terms of how stories have shaped my life as opposed to my writing mm -hmm. yeah I met my wife because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer oh that's amazing so I love it we met um, about not quite 20 years ago um on a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan site that is um, so cute and like we read each other's fan fiction and we had very in-depth discussions about, you know, do vampires have souls and does it matter? You know, not do vampires have souls, sorry. What is the function of a soul in a vampire? Um, and yeah, so we just kind of, we that's how we got to know each other and, and got to know each other through words, you know, before we ever met because she was living in America at the time. So yeah, so Buffy's given me that. Um, and I think Buffy also gave me, so I was, um, I watched, first watched Buffy when I was doing a advertising copywriting course. Oh, yeah. um, and I'd actually wanted to be in advertising since I was 15. Like I'd, I'd had this, this dream because basically I had a competition at school to write an advert and my team won. So I was like, right, this is clearly what I'm meant to do, you know. Um, and I don't think I'd had any idea of what advertising really was. It just was a fantasy, you know. So mm -hmm. I went to this copywriting course, which is like the standard industry course. You do copywriting and art direction in Watford. Um, and I realised that the point of advertising is to sell things. And I didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, so so one of the other people on the course um, gave me Buffy as a, like a, lent me his DVDs. Um, and... And I think it was a wonderful escape from realizing that I'd made a horrible mistake. <laughs> Not a horrible, it wasn't an irreparable mistake, but I, that, that my life needed to change direction. Um, and it took a while for me to change direction into books, but um, but eventually I did. Um, so I like to think Buffy helped a little bit with that as well. Sure. Of that kind of, it gave that moment of like creative space in an environment where I was like, this is not the thing for me, you know? Wow. Well, I'm really glad that you got that opportunity to change direction. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been Don Draper and very bitter. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, well, I suppose you're still selling things in some way, like you're you're selling hope, you're selling, you're yeah. selling dreams. You're selling, I'm not literally the you're one selling change. The, the shock, you know. Which no, actually, I mean, when I went into publishing, most of my publishing career was not selling things at all because I worked at Usborne for years where mm. it's much more like being in academia and you all sit there cosily writing books and researching and, you know. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. Really like not having too much to do with the business stuff. But then I went to work for Penguin and I really was selling and I was literally pitching a lot. Um, and I think, again, that's not really where my soul lies. It was right. fascinating and I'm, I'm glad, really glad I did it because I got that kind of understanding, I guess, of publishing as a business, which... I find is very helpful to detach yourself from that, you know, knowing, knowing how it works. I'm like, yeah, well, that's a problem. And obviously I, I don't always detach myself, but I mean, my editor, um, non-proud Walker is very like, it's not your job to sell the books. And I think I find that and my agent says the same, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's just a great relief when it's like, you know, whether or not a book sells is, is not down to me really. Like obviously I can do events and stuff, but it's not, so then it kind of brings everything back to story. Um, and I think that is why we all did it, right? So, yep, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that kind of, um, I don't know, remember that it's never going to be art for art's sake, you've got to make money. But, um, but I think the more you focus on story as opposed to publishing, just the happier you are. <laughs> yes. I absolutely agree. Yeah, it can be a it can be a tough it is a tough industry to be in. Um and it is hard to accept, I suppose, how little control you have over certain yeah. aspects of the of and basically all you can control is the your out your own artistic output, isn't it? And the, yeah. the, the stories that you that you create and that's uh, that's where you need to focus. Um yeah. so it can be tough for people when they 
and they begin, you know, to think, oh, do, you know, it doesn't matter how good my book is or it doesn't matter how hard I work on it. It could flop and there's nothing that I can really do. I just um, find that freeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I do and I don't. Um, one thing, my big tip, if anyone listening is a writer, wants to be a writer, um, listen to Publishing Rodeo podcast. It's the most honest Thing I've ever heard about the business side of publishing from an author mm-hmm. perspective like they literally talk about how much money they were paid um what clauses they had in their contracts um I binged the whole thing in about a week um and you know they're long episodes <laughs> yeah um, and I, I just felt like th- these are conversations I'd had in private with writer friends but I'd never had that kind of I've never heard anyone talk about it on a podcast like that I mean maybe, yeah. maybe there are but like I'd, ne- I'd never come across it no I think you're right I, I listened to it because I heard you or I saw you on, on social media it talking about how good it was else for a week. yeah <laughs> yeah well I did I haven't binged it because I find it I, I find it I find it it's an excellent podcast and, and yeah. I just say it's so honest and and I've never heard anybody as you say being so open about their, yeah. you know their, their, the financial side but I just find it really hard. It's a hard one to listen to. So I oh, yeah. kinda, I, I kind of pace myself it's with it. It's raw. Yeah. I think basically like I in my story habits, I like to have really horrible things as my comfort watch. So <laughs> Hannibal. So relaxing. I just just a, a little guy eating people, you know? <laughs> Another just little fun. guy. Um, so I, and I, and you know, like I love watching like the walking dead and all that sort of stuff. And I think publishing rodeo kind of hit that same mm-hmm. note for me in that it, it was a story about how everything is bad, but also sometimes for me, like staring right at the bad thing makes me feel better. Like I'm kind of by seeing it, I can yeah. make it have less power over me. Is it like, I've seen the worst that things can be now. So nothing well, seems yeah, as bad yeah. by comparison. Um, or and like, like and yeah. also like, if you literally stare at the monster under your bed, some of their power goes away. It just away. gets bored and goes they, away. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> if they're a shadowy monster on your bed, they're much scarier. Yeah. We're back to Susan Stowellish again. I love her approach <laughs> to monsters under the bed. Just whack them with the poker. Yeah. <laughs> I love her. Love yeah. Her I haven't actually talked about Terry Pratchett at all, and I feel like I should. Oh, um, you better. I mean, the Terry Pratchett Neil Gaiman team up is my most kind of influential it's, thing. It's like catnip yeah. to me too. Yeah. Good, good Omen specifically. Oh, yeah. 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 My favorite things, which are apocalypses and just William. Um, so, oh my god, I love that. And I think yeah. you know, like I had in in many ways quite a religious upbringing. So I loved I love anything that kind of remixes Christianity. You know, yes. Um, yes. I went to a very Christian primary school, and I think it's it's really that's shaped my story universe actually because I read the Bible a lot. You know, I've forgotten it all now, but like it's definitely mm. my fundamental concepts of what it means to be a character, what it means to have a journey. Sure, yeah. So like I like characters that die and come back. They're my favourites, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and also I like people stories about a bunch of mates that hang out a lot. Um yeah. Eating bread <laughs> and drinking wine and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Betraying each other, stabbing each other. <laughs> um, and and also, yeah, another kind of like one, I guess, sort of that influenced what I read later when I was a student and I loved Milton and Blake because they were kind of yeah. sci-fi reimaginings of the bible absolutely um, yeah and i there's nothing more kind of metal than the scene in in paradise lost paradise lost yeah mm-hmm. um, yeah it's like i want to see that on the big screen you know <laughs> actually it would be brilliant it would be brilliant yeah, i love paradise lost. one yeah. day i might write it but um i think um i mean actually c.s lewis did a great retelling of paradise lost as well in space so <laughs> in space <laughs> everything's better in space exactly. uh-huh. yeah so yeah, yeah. but um but yes, and Blake as well, the kind of visionary approach to, to Christian stories. Um, and I just think that kind of, I think basically Blake and Alan Moore are basically the same person in my head. Um, but that idea of like everything is kind of, the universe is full of light and you've just got to look at it right, at the right angle, you know. Again, I'm, I'm really not a spiritual person when it comes to like believing in, I don't know, spirits or whatever. Um, but I do think, I do believe in stories in that way. And I do think that stories are that way to look into the, what is it called? Seeing the universe in a grain of sand, you know, seeing, seeing mm. miraculous things in a very ordinary setting. That's, that's always where the magic is for me. And I think Good Omens was that because it had, everything was very prosaic. It, it even predicted Huel, which I was very impressed with. Yes, um, actually. I often um, find that I find that all kind, those of kind of food amazing. Yeah, the food and that have no nutritional value at all. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. That I, whenever I see those things, I go, "Oh my god, this is where yeah. Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, you know, they they had yeah. this uh, thirty years ago." Yeah, um, and yeah, so I think that 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 sort of you know very kind of prosaic stuff about mortal life, but also the divine, the kind of 
infernal and mm. and the fact that the infernal and the divine aren't that different you know just the infernal has better cars it's like that Kit Kat ad from the 80s or maybe the 90s you know when there was an angel and a demon taking a break yeah and they were in, in, in the same break room and they were you know just you know you know they'd go in and they'd have a break and they'd have it they'd have their kids maybe that was an island only maybe yeah because i have very vivid it's memories such of a ad. brilliant ad yeah. like just you yeah. know they're, they're, i've got to find that yeah, we'll, if you, we'll, if you find, we'll find it, it on YouTube and send it, it to you. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, because I used to think it was brilliant. Yeah, just the, yeah. Just the, the angel and the demon sitting down together and just just talking, you know, passing, passing the time, passing pleasantries, and then it's the end of the break and they're finished their Kit Kat and they're like, all oh, right, back to it. See you later. Yeah. You know, and off they, <laughs> off they go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. good. And, mm. um, and actually, I think um, another C.S. Lewis one, the screw tape letters, did that really interesting yeah. way about that kind of idea of how you corrupt someone. And and the fact that it is a job, you know, like you got you got to work at corruption just like you got to work at anything else. I've never read those. I need to read. I need to read the screw type letters. Yeah, it's basically. Um, I think it's a demon writing to his uncle. His no, uncle or it's something. the uncle writing to the demon. To the demon, uh, right? Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and the demon's clearly not doing a good enough job. You know, it's trying um, to give him give him guidance on how better yeah, to yeah. corrupt. Yeah, yeah. He was very clever too. C.S. Lewis, I love. Yeah, he was. I love and I think yeah. basically there was things I hated about C.S. Lewis. Um, and I think basically, I, you know, obviously like Narnia just got me so angry. Um, team Susan. I mean, I'm not actually Team Susan because I wasn't. I was. I mean, she's not a great character, but but, but the idea that you're punished. But she like, was. She was. She was done dirty by that. She was done dirty. Yeah. I still remember um, Naomi Alderman was talking about doing a kind of detective version of Susan, like a, a noir detective in the in the post-war period. Um, nice. And I just don't know when it goes out of copyright, but as soon as it does, Naomi Alderman, I'm holding you to that. Very good. There is a book by a woman called Laura Weymouth. And again, I have remembered her name, but the book title is gone from my memory. But it's it's not it's not technically a, a, like a, a Rita or like a, or a version of Susan after Narnia. But it's very like all the character names are all different and whatever. But it's very similar. And if you were yeah, if you're yeah. a Narnia fan and if you're a Susan fan, as I am, you yeah. know, you can see her. She's she's there, you know, so I, 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 um, I was actually a used to scrub fan. Oh, uh, I, 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 yeah. I just he is like a huge influence on my life, <laughs> and I love the I love the introduction. Is it him that the the first line is his name was Eustace Clarence Scrub, and so that was and he almost fault. deserved. Yeah, it he almost deserved it. He almost yes. deserved it. He almost yeah. deserved it. Yeah. yeah, and I think basically there's the kind of like making fun of modern parents and stuff, and like yeah. schools that don't have discipline, and um, which I always felt was a bit harsh. I was like, yeah, um, it just felt a bit like woke snowflake, but I don't know. If, um, you know they he he really was a monster so um but i think that idea of the monster who reforms and the kind of um i did actually pinch an image from c.s lewis for otherland which is the idea of um someone kind of showing their moral transformation through a dragon transformation um so in mine it wasn't the person transforming themselves it was the person perceiving someone else mm -hmm. through the dragon you know like through the illusion of the dragon they see the real person and it was their ability to see the person that made them good i guess wow, very clever. Uh, in, in narnia one it's a lot more like brutal like muscular christianity where he gets yeah. his skin peeled off him and it's all really like mm. yeah. it's quite medieval saint's life yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's yeah, yeah. Like, hair shirts and flogging and yeah know, yeah <laughs> um, which you know is not the part of christianity i want to draw on necessarily no i just much rather have to sort of love everyone and don't be an awful person that would be... and love everyone. yeah that's yeah. the bit that give away your property and love everyone yes absolutely that's the bit i like too um but unfortunately as i say all the time on this podcast i literally could speak about this forever <laughs> with you it's been an, an, just such a fun but we're nearly at an hour of amazing chat so we do need to wrap it up soon and i'm really can i make sorry. a recommendation before absolutely. we go go for it go um, for it go so for it. i i said that the best version of lord of the rings is the radio version Yes. Everyone should listen to that. However, I've just remembered another version which I like even better. It's a retelling of The Fellowship of the Ring as a music video. Ooh, and it's basically okay. an Australian guy who I will have to look up and send you the link for the show notes. Um, but it's basically um, a kind of spoof interview with Tolkien and it's Tolkien's publishers being, you know, like saying, oh, I really, really like The Hobbit. What you got next? Um, 
and, <laughs> and he's like so you know i've got this story it's a magic quest and they were like yes yes it's very exciting and then he describes the plot and it's and they walk 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 <laughs> walk, 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 walk hide underground walk walk <laughs> and i honestly like i watch it about once a week because it's just so funny oh brilliant. that sounds amazing you must uh, have yeah, to think about it's, it's okay. this yeah. kind of wonderful rhythmic um you know comedy video but it's it's only and there's a bit where he's kind of like um the the, the publisher's like oh yeah yeah fine okay we'll publish it and he goes i'm not a third of the way through <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. that's funny when i was reading lord of the rings as a kid and when i you know i, I never picked up on walking it never bothered me that they were well, well, like doing it. stories yeah i'm like it's just how else are they going to get around they're not going to like yeah, yeah. catch the train are they you know, all of my so favorite it's... stories are people who just head off walking like yeah. the hounds of the morrigan Yes, that story of hands of the Morrigan. Two children walk. walking. Yeah, walk I mean, through Ireland, driving is just implausible. They're too young. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so thank you so much for having me. And no, no. I, I think I literally it's... could have talked for about another two hours. So. Me too. I will. I, I know. Yeah. I would happily listen to you. Um, it's just I. I wish we could. Uh, I wish we could do that. Um, but before you go, just briefly, and I hate that this is my cheeky question that I'd like to ask. And if you can tell me without getting in trouble with your editors. Um, what is next from you in terms of upcoming projects? And I can, can tell you because it is yeah. a, it's just Loki Book 4. But, awesome. Um, this is not something I can tell you, but I'm going to show you because you're not going to put this in the podcast. No, it's not. Characters. Ooh. Ooh. Still, still being oh, designed. listeners, if only you could so, see what we're looking yeah. at. <laughs> so that's still being designed. But um, yeah, basically we're bringing in a new mythological strand, let's just Amazing. say. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm invested. That's Cannot fantastic. wait. And when is that coming? Do you know when it's coming, Lou? That one's coming next year. Next year. And Lucky 3 is just out. Lucky 3 is coming in the 1st of June. 1st of June. That's the one, obviously, everyone should buy and pre-order. I'm sure we'll be broadcasting around that time. I'm I'm not sure when exactly the episode will be out. (laughs) Well, awesome. But um, yeah, so I'm really excited about talking about book three because it is like, I think it's the first book I've ever written that I kind of actually feel proud of, which is an unusual feeling for me. Oh my gosh. After 50 million books, surely. <laughs> million brilliant sure. books. Well, there million brilliant books, yeah. Oh my God. I mean, you're, you're so book prolific. Book is it's... my most kind of Tolkien infused of all of them. Oh, Fantastic. I love the it. The ring in it. So that I drew based on my engagement ring, just because it happened to be on my finger when I was drawing the ring. So <laughs> Actually, I meant, I meant to ask you, and we'll have to come have you on again, Louis, because I wanted to ask you about the illustrations that you did for, mm. for Loki and how, how, you, how you came up with your concepts and what it was like to be an illustrator of your own work. Um, so if you can tell us briefly uh, in, in a word hard it's harder than writing all right yeah. um, I mean it's partly because I hadn't done it professionally before I'd done you know little cartoons and whatnot um, yeah. I'd done a web comic but that was it was only ever like max like 10 frames or something you know 10 panels um, so doing something that long was definitely different because I was you know producing like 300 illustrations a book um I got an awful lot of help from my designer Jamie who kind of held my hand throughout the whole process and he was um very helpful in terms of things like character consistency because that that was the hardest thing to crack character consistency and also um things like consistency of line thickness which i'd never thought mm. about before. oh yeah good point it's like you know like yeah. basically i'm i you know i use pens and basically there was one bit where like my pen started to run out and then i got a new pen so the line thickness changed because you know i mean the worn out pen was a different thickness to the other one to the one yeah so it's definitely things like that where it just it wouldn't have occurred to me well, of course not. It wouldn't occur to anybody unless they had, as you, as you say, been through the, this procedure. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but in terms of the character creations, I think like Loki came not fully formed because I definitely drew quite a lot of versions of him. But I think there was always a core of the like spikiness that was always mm-hmm. there. Um, but he didn't actually have black hair to start off with because in the myths he doesn't. Um, but basically, um, what kind of it was Jamie's suggestion actually that basically black hair would stand out better on the page. Better on the page, yeah. Especially because Thor has pale hair as well. Yeah. So if there's two characters with mm. pale hair, they and it's not coloured thin, so you wouldn't be able to tell. I mean, I think they both have red hair actually, but you know, yeah, I think one can change from the myth when it comes to hair colour. I think uh, that's 100 percent allowed. Yes, as a medievalist, I give you permission. No, <laughs> thank you for speaking for all medievalists. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm sorry to have rushed that last part because it was so interesting. But we better we better wrap things up and. Uh, all I've got to say, yes, we'll have to bring you back. Absolutely. Um, but all I have to say now is uh, a massive thank you to our fantastic guest, uh, Louis Stowe, who has given us the most amazing hour of her 
time and expertise. It's just been so much fun. Um, I hope that you guys have enjoyed listening to it as much as me and Susan have enjoyed uh, being here uh, talking to Louis. It's been amazing. Um, and if you have enjoyed the episode, which I hope you have, uh, again, I would ask you to please take two seconds of your time uh, to give us a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and even in Spotify, if you listen to us by Spotify, you can write in the middle of your app. You can give us a quick uh, feedback uh, just by clicking, clicking a button. Um, it's really simple. So please, if you could do that, it would be great. Um, all support is warmly uh, received and uh, we love to we love to gain uh, more readers or more listeners, I should say, every week um, and bring them into our story-shaped family. Um, it's all wonderful. But until yeah. next week, we shall <laughs> we shall leave you leave you in peace um, when we have another new guest coming back to talk to us. Um, uh, but uh, until then, we shall just say farewell. So it is farewell and adieu from me, Sinead O'Hart, and farewell and adieu from... Bye from me, Susan Cattle, and farewell and adieu from the brilliant Louis Stoll. Louis Stoll. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you all for listening, and adieu until next week. You've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod, and don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. Uh-huh.